Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. Right. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. As always, I'm here with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, my friend. Always good to be with you. Very much looking forward to your conversation today, ever since you put this one on the book. So kick things off for us, please. Yes, great to be with you, Todd. And I am very excited because I have a my personal mentor and a fellow speech and language pathologist and a researcher who is doing some incredible work in the field and which has influenced my work. Before I get to that, I thought, you know, all the listeners know that I'm, I was born and raised in India, and mentorship or coaching was something that I got introduced through my father, and I call it real-time coaching. So my father coached all three children in the same way, which is including, you know, he would walk us to the market and show us how to select fruits and vegetables, how to decide which fruits are ready uh, ripe and ready to eat the same night versus which ones will take three days. How do you judge whether the vendor is selling you good stuff or not? And when I got to college, I was very surprised that many of my friends or most of my friends had never heard such a thing. They thought uh, I was uh, crazy to have, you know, coached to select vegetables. But the kind of household I grew up with was everything, including how to improve handwriting, how to do public speaking, but most importantly, how to advocate for myself. That is something I got explicit guidance, supervision. My father used to take us to his work and we used to sit in his office while he negotiated. He was, of course, he had nothing to do with the background I have, but he was a marketing manager and he worked for a chemical company and he would negotiate things with the different vendors and we would just watch and learn and he would discuss how he did what he did. So the reason I'm talking about that is that brings me to the conversation we are going to have. The most important part from executive function point of view is learning how to learn and learning how to think for yourself and by watching yourself, monitoring yourself and changing the way you do things is a very critical aspect of making changes to self and improving oneself. And that requires executive function. Adults typically don't get mentors or mentoring unless you seek. And research shows that dynamic and personalized coaching has meaningful impact. But the needs are even greater for those who have challenges or disabilities or disorders or something like concussion and uh, traumatic brain injury. So that me brings me to this most amazing, wonderful woman. Her name is Mary R.T. Kennedy. She is a fellow speech and language pathologist, as I mentioned. She's a professor and chair at the Communication Sciences and Disorders at Chapman University in California. She is an ASHA fellow, which is quite an honor. Mary has extensive clinical research and experience working with individuals with cognitive impairment after traumatic brain injury, specifically with executive function, metacognition, and self-regulation. Her work is truly meaningful because her work informs the way practitioners all around the globe engage in the evidence-based practice. Her most recent work, which is what we're going to focus on today, focuses on how best to support college students with brain injury, which is very critical in her book, Coaching College Students and Executive Function with Executive Function Problems. 
I'm going to provide a link so that people can actually purchase that book. Mary's research focuses on executive functions and metacognition after brain injury. And this meta process, that awareness of awareness and awareness of your thinking, your approach and learning is really something that not a lot of people know about and has tremendous impact in the way people reciprocate when you're trying to help. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Mary to the podcast. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Sushetta. Thank you very much. Can you tell us a little bit about your own executive function skills? When did you discover learning to learn process for yourself? And how did you get interested in executive function and metacognition? Yeah, that is a really good question, Sucheta. And I've actually never been asked that question. Really? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Growing up, I was really good at going to school and I loved to learn and I was a very inquisitive child. So I think the household that I grew up in, similar to yours, really encouraged exploration and creative play so that we, each of us girls, learned to kind of highlight and do what we did best and then even take it to the next level. So there was a lot of cooking and gardening and outdoor play for us, as well as going to school and being really good in the classroom. I think that executive functions are something that children develop over time. We know that Children, even in adolescence and early adulthood, don't have fully developed frontal lobes. That doesn't usually happen until um, sometime in the 20s. So that having an understanding of how they develop and what happens in late adolescence when people have an injury is really critical to um, setting them on a path so that they can become kind of their own experts in learning. I'm going to quickly go back to this idea that you talked about that you were good at going to school. And I had Daniel Pink, a quite well-known author, and he was talking about the same thing. And those who are really good at learning and have that natural curiosity, which sounds like at your home, got further fostered and you had some intuition and intuitive understanding of yourself. You just thrived and became even more proficient at self. And it's such a disservice in the households where There is kind of a little bit chaos or not enough emphasis on this exploration, playfulness and a discovery of self, then they are missing out. And then you add on top of that some kind of injury that can really create a disadvantage. So how has our understanding of executive function changed over time and how has that played a role in the way we view post-secondary education? I think it's changed dramatically over time, and I can only speak to that from the perspective of being a speech pathologist and spending so many years in rehabilitation. So as you mentioned, I've worked with people with traumatic brain injury as well as other types of acquired brain injury. And I think that early in my career, in the 80s and even maybe into the 90s, we really were focused on teaching our patients or our clients specific strategies. And a lot of those strategies were external strategies like using a memory notebook or using a planner or setting timers. And so to remind oneself that you had to do something. I think that a lot of those strategies were useful and easy to teach in a therapy environment, in an inpatient rehabilitation setting or in an outpatient setting. And they were often done through activities that the clinician or the therapist thought of themselves. And I think that as time has worn on, 
and many people, even before my work, thought of this as well. So Mark Ilvesacker in particular talked about how executive functions are dynamic in that they involve a process. So they aren't just one thing. And it isn't that you can just teach someone to be inhibited. So you can't teach them to be inhibited in a therapy session and then expect them to be able to use that in the environment um, of work or at home or at school. So that we were really focused on teaching individuals very specific skills and using specific strategies. In the therapy room, we weren't as good at teaching them how to use those strategies in the natural environment. Part of that is because as therapists, we can't be with them in the natural environment. And so, you know, we're able to control kind of what what we can do as a clinician, but we can't necessarily control what's happening at home or in the classroom or at work. So I think our view of executive functions has become more fluid as we have explored ways to support individuals when they're out in the real world. So we're better at giving them tools to track their own behavior and to identify the barriers that exist in in the classroom that are preventing them from being able to pay attention, for example. So I think that we've gotten better at being able to create that kind of bridge to the real world. And as we do that, then we have to take what our clients tell us and how and what they've recorded has happened in the real world. We have to take that to heart because if we don't, if we simply say, well, no, you need to do it the way you're doing it here in the therapy room, then that has become irrelevant because it clearly, you know, it isn't working out in the real world. So by having a client who is really trying these strategies or skills that we've taught them in the real world, having them come back and tell us how it's really going in the real world, by doing that, we are letting them know your opinion matters. We are partners in this endeavor. And If it didn't go well the first time, let's talk about it and figure out what went wrong and see if we can come up with a solution that you're willing to try again. Yeah, you know, we've gotten better at that. And you know what? It's so striking to me as you're talking about this. I spent three days, uh, I was presenting and I was also participating in a a conference, which is mainly uh, directed towards educators. And this piece is missing. The educational context is not dynamic. The student is never coming back and informing the teacher what is happening to him or her at home as he or she takes his learning home and see how whether the learning is effective, sustainable, uh, dynamic. And none of that is part of the discussion. And uh, what I uh, also like what you are mentioning is that metacognitive process that means kind of relating back to how aware are you of your own thinking as it pertains to your needs? So as we, you and I know that people with executive function problems have that poor awareness, so their needs are not very clear to them. And that's why a lot of clinicians are taking charge of that patient or client's learning or directed or dictated. But I like that you keep emphasizing that it needs to be switched back and put it back on the shoulders of the client themselves. Right. So 
how do we help college students to achieve more? What are the barriers created by uh, injuries to the brain that affect executive function and student success in general in your experience? So executive functions, you know, are, are a complex of processes. They aren't just one thing. And one of the most important pieces of that is the ability to self-assess, come up with goals, and then come up, identify some strategies that might help you reach those goals, and then using the strategies and thinking about whether they worked or not. So I think that students with traumatic brain injury have a unique problem in that very often they have other disabilities. So they may have an attention deficit disorder. They're not classified as ADHD, but they may have attention problems after their injury. They may have um, memory impairments. That's pretty standard and typical where people have difficulty with new learning, learning something that they need to learn since their accident. They may be slow uh, at thinking. Their thinking processing may be just a little bit slower than it was before. So those are pretty standard kinds of cognitive impairment after a brain injury. If you layer on top of that um, an executive function problem where you're not able to think about your thinking, you're not able to quickly assess in an environment that's natural how you're performing, then you really end up with what I would call a dual disability. So a person who, ha- who knows they have a memory problem and can identify the situations where they have that memory problem and can use a compensatory strategy to help them remember that information, then they have an advantage over the person who has the memory impairment but doesn't even know that they have the memory impairment or doesn't have any strategies and doesn't know what to do about their memory impairment. So in the second example, that person has a dual disability, whereas in the first example, the person has a memory impairment, but they kind of know what to do about it. So mm-hmm. college students with brain injury are, have dual disabilities because their executive functions aren't operating well, and maybe they weren't fully developed even before they had their brain injury, and so now they're, they're, they're kind of taking a step back. And we're asking the brain that's injured itself, right, to itself reflect on itself and come up with strategies. And so that is a real barrier for students with brain injury or concussion who are going to college. It can also be a barrier for students who have other kinds of executive function problems. So students, for example, with ADHD and ADD often have executive function problems, and those students they come into college having developed an understanding of their own learning, but when they get to college, the game has changed. Classes are much more challenging. They're on their own. They're independent. And now suddenly all that support that the high school and the family may have provided um, as a younger person is kind of removed. It's gone. And so now they have executive function problems that they thought they had taken care of um, when they were younger. So it's kind of a new game for them. So it isn't just people with traumatic brain injury that have executive function problems. Absolutely. But it's, it's, it's other individuals as well. You know, my work ranges from anywhere between somebody who's eight years old to 
older adult. <laughs> and the population without any neurological insult to the brain, such as ADHD, learning disability, dyslexia, whatever you name it, I find a true deficit in that uh, self sense of autonomy, that whole self-determination skills. You know, how do I know what I know? How do I gather information about myself? What are the sources that feed me this knowledge of self? Those kinds of skills are never explicitly taught. They're not, uh, there is no language given to the students, forget whether you have disability or not. And I feel that this is a very critical piece that's missing in education. And once again, I keep coming to education because you and I, as a speech and language pathologist, often see when it's impaired, but then it's also absent if it's not explicitly nudged out of somebody, right? What is your thought about that? Absolutely. No, absolutely. So the topic of the book that I've written is dynamic coaching. And I think you hit on a really good point, and that is that the sense of who you are, your sense of self, is never discussed maybe explicitly with a lot of young adults. And I think that the rehabilitation literature now for individuals with traumatic brain injury has fairly good evidence to show that in natural contexts, and natural environments where the student is noticing their own performance, where they're actively engaged in figuring out what is working for them and what isn't working for them, that those experiences are the ones that have the potential to change one's perception of themselves. So if you think about going to college without a brain injury, Young adults come to college and they have perceptions of what they're going to do and how they learn and what they're really interested in. And then as they go through college, they have a lot of experiences. Some are really good and some are not so good. So they begin to discover what they're going to be successful at doing. And a lot of that is based on, you know, their performance in their classes and their extracurricular activities. So what do they enjoy doing? What is easy? And the thing about dynamic coaching, which educators and rehabilitation um, individuals can participate in, it is very much a collaborative process. But for individuals who need that explicitness, and that is a lot of individuals with executive function problems, they need the explicit instruction in self-regulation. So they need to uh, be taught to think about their thinking and think about their performance. They need to be taught to think about all the strategies that they have available or maybe even learn some new ones if they need to. And then to come up with plans about how they're going to implement those strategies in class, you know, in their apartment, with their roommates, at work, and then come back to the coach And, you know, explicitly say, well, I tried this and it worked in these situations really well. It didn't work so well in these others. And through that conversation, this dynamic aspect of thinking about your thinking becomes very practical and it becomes very rewarding for the student. So Mm -hmm. that it's, it's not the traditional teacher or clinician role where, the individual is coming back and saying, well, I did this and it worked. And then the clinician goes on to something else. So it becomes dynamic in that as strategies emerge that are really useful to the student, then the coach helps the student explore other situations, other avenues, 
where those strategies can be used. It also communicates to the student that they can think about these things themselves. They become the experts in how they can learn and experience the world rather than having the educator or the clinician always being the expert. Yes, and just shifts the power if we want to think about that way and makes you a partner rather than somebody is talking down to you. You know, in uh, in my talks, I often say to educators or SLPs, as long as if if you propose a strategy, then your executive process went into it. That means you assess the need, you assess the appropriate match, and you recommended it. Now, how do you make the student to assess the need for self? How do you get the student to assess the qualifying, uh, you know, make, create some qualifiers that makes you understand how good a strategy is? And then as you deploy the strategy, how do you draw conclusions whether it's working or not? And that self-blindness, which is a process of executive dysfunction, can often lead to students not being attuned to it. But then it's very tempting to teach somebody all you know without really making sure that they can teach themselves. So if I can backtrack a little bit, uh, you have mentioned dynamic coaching, and I would love to talk about that. Can you just quickly give our listeners an overview of the idea of coaching? And you also mentioned this work of Prochaska and colleagues about the stages of change, which I love that uh, concept, but, you know, that pre-contemplation, contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance, the stage that really interests me about this coaching and the relationship to the coach is how do you work with unaware folks (laughs) who resist, rebel, or they even have some logic that I don't need it, or what you have to offer is not what I need. And that can create a lot of roadblocks to coaching. And then maybe we can get into dynamic coaching. Sure. So dynamic coaching is just a collaborative um, therapeutic approach where self-regulation is explicitly modeled for students and it's explicitly instructed. There is a lot of dynamic reciprocal adjusting and problem solving and the clinician coach really views the student with a tremendous amount of respect and, and autonomy. And an example of that is a student of ours was has, was using a particular recording device called LiveScribe or the Smart Pen, mm-hmm. and he was having trouble with it. And we explored a number of of things that were going on in the classroom. And he decided one day that he would start to doodle or kind of do cartoon characters and doodle on the paper rather than actually taking notes. And he came back and he reported to us that he was actually able to remember more when he doodled. He could remember where the instructor was in the room when he touched that particular part of the doodle because LiveScribe will play an audio um, (laughs) piece of that. Yeah. So that's an example of someone who just did something on their own and the coach had no idea that that would ever have helped him. And so that autonomy that the student felt to be able to even do that was really important. And in the end, came up with a solution that if it had been up to the coach, she would have never been able to figure that out. (laughs) And I, I think your point about teachers, educators, and clinicians, basically what you're saying is being really good at executive functions and doing it for people, right? (laughs) That speech pathologists are a lot of type A's uh, of us out there. And we really (laughs) like to organize things for people. Take charge. (laughs) Take charge. That's right. We're really good at that. 
And I think in my own professional development, it wasn't until I really started to work on the college campus and I I saw what students were going through that I began to realize that these were students who needed some explicit connection in how to use their strategies in the real world. Because we as clinicians, we'd been really good at teaching students and teaching our clients things in the therapy room and then basically getting frustrated with them because they're not using it. And I hear over and over and over again, and you probably have too, of of educators and clinicians saying, well, he knows how to do it. He just doesn't do it. He He just doesn't do it at home. Well, there's reasons for that. And so by being an executive function coach and engaging dynamic coaching, you're really making yourself accountable and making the student accountable to all the rest of the things that need to be dealt with to get that student actually using the strategy. And that includes assessing the strategy in real time, documenting it, did it, how, how much work did that involve? Was that work that the student is willing to put out or is that just too much? And then coming back and identifying additional strategies or whether that particular strategy needs to be tweaked or adjusted somehow. So I think like we've been really good at teaching them what we want them to learn in terms of a particular skill or a strategy like visual imagery, but using that strategy, using that visual imagery in a very practical situation, we've not been very good at. And I think that's where dynamic coaching really helps us kind of complete that part of the process. Beautiful. And uh, I'll relate to uh, something you mentioned in my personal experience that, you know, I'm extremely a phenomenal executive function, if I may say so myself. <laughs> and and honestly, I mean, that that insight into how I think and learn has really helped me to guide people. But I have to really curb my enthusiasm and not provide all these innovative and creative ideas to people. And, you know, the work that you talk about is establishing this relationship where the client or the student has this sense of agency that I can do the same that you're doing for me is something we work on right off the bat. One of the things that I ask students is do a lot of videos and post pictures of their work. So Mm -hmm. I, I give them like two strategies and they have to come up with two strategies on their own. So I say one of the most effective ways to create a environment where more, you know, you can be um, not be distracted is these two things. Now you show me in which two ways you actually have a strategy to make that happen for yourself. And it's always so surprising to me because if I use my traditional approach, turn off the music, you know, or turn on, uh, you know, white noise or whatever my standard of my self perceived uh, recommendations that I had a student who actually had a lamp and he recognized that he had two lamps in his uh, dorm room. And he said, this light doesn't work because it comes in my eyes because it's at eye level, but it doesn't switch down, you know? So when Mm -hmm. I put the light that's behind me, it's much better for me. Then it kind of creates this very, like, like a floodlight or, you know, on my work. And I was like, great, that's wonderful. Like there was no way I would have known, as you mentioned, unless I saw a picture that he shared with me about his room. So I think even taking that initiative to show his Mm -hmm. picture and then point out things like just like your ascribed pen that you were talking about is such an important dynamic process that the clinicians and teachers and educators, parents need to be open to. (laughs) Yeah. I to go back to something that you you mentioned you asked me before and I don't think I 
I hit it. I think that I did not realize as a therapist the extent to which we were missing or not engaging in the second half of that self-regulation process, which is the implementation piece and then the adjustment piece. Because if you go to conferences, you'll hear clinicians say over and over again, I don't know why he doesn't use these strategies. And I think that that second piece, that second half of the self-regulation feedback loop, we've just been ignoring. So, so that's my one thought. My other thought was that in my own professional development, I would get very frustrated when my clients wouldn't do what we talked about. And so it wasn't until I really kind of saw it in action when I started seeing college students with brain injury on campus that I realized we needed to explicitly be instructing them in how to use their strategies in real life. And then they needed to become coming back and educating us about whether it worked or not. Yes, but you know, that's the uh, the humility in you, I think. And, and of course, you deeply understand metacognition. I find that, you know, the initial model that you described, that when we uh, sit across somebody and try to help them, there's such an ownership people take of helping means I need to tell and part all the knowledge I have onto you. So it becomes accidental dump <laughs> rather than tell me what you need and in what ways can I help you help yourself. If you restructure right. your thinking like that, it will be so effective, particularly for executive function. Right? Right. I don't think that we can work on executive functions devoid from a context or devoid from a situation. And sometimes clinicians and educators get concerned that they're not covering enough areas that the person is having difficulty in. So someone begins to go to college after a brain injury or or with having ADHD. And, you know, there are so many aspects of college that that student needs to master and that that really is not the responsibility of the coach and that teaching um, and modeling students to work on solutions to their issues that are in front of them actually helps them figure out how to get to the bigger issues of how am I going to graduate from college or how am I going to be successful next semester? So kind of like dealing with the current, even the more, the smaller decisions is a way to model and provide a foundation for that student to make those bigger decisions down the road as they evolve. So remarkable. That's so powerful. So uh, how do we get uh, make a shift for the student uh, where he begins to think like a coach. You know, I like to use this analogy with my children that, you know, after eating your mom's delicious food for years, then comes time when you should begin to learn to cook. It's probably a long road before you can call yourself a chef, but you must start somewhere. So <laughs> how does in that context, how does this when you begin to coach with somebody, your first you know, stand should be I recognize a good coaching process. I recognize somebody having expertise in learning how to learn. And then when does the student, when do you get your students to begin to think that I need to think like a coach where I guide me so I can uh, navigate the terrain of learning myself? That's a wonderful question. And I don't, I don't know that I have ever explicitly thought of it just that way, but I like the way you, you asked that. 
And I can only answer it from the experiences that we have had with our students with brain injury. Each of our students is is in, an individual, and some of them needed coaching for several semesters, and some of them just maybe two semesters. And the students end up taking on the self-coaching towards the end, and they In other words, as they're getting ready for, say, the next semester, you can begin to see them think about which courses they should take and why they should take those courses and what strategies they're going to use and um, how that's going to affect, you know, what's going on at home and are they going to be able to continue to work that much or, you know, they begin to kind of plan and make those adjustments on their own. So... I don't know that there's any one point in time that you can say, okay, now you're able to self-coach. But over the period of meeting with them weekly, and maybe that's two semesters or three semesters, you begin to see that they are making these decisions and they're sharing it with you rather than you initiating it and bringing it up with them. So I don't know that I can say there's a particular time point or I haven't really thought about how do you explicitly have a student become their own coach, except that by engaging in metacognitive processes over and over and over again, and by seeing it modeled weekly in coaching sessions, it becomes a little more routine in their thinking. And as they have these experiences of, you know, gee, I used that strategy, I did really well on the quiz, but next semester I have a different kind of class and I'm going to need different strategies. I wonder if there are any strategies that I have in my backpack that I could pull out that I've used before that might, you know, be effective. As you begin to see them identify and have that kind of conversation with the coach, then the coach realizes that they're beginning to be self, self-efficacious, that they're beginning to figure this out themselves. And like you said, agents have agency. So I don't think there is any one point in time, but it is slowly um, occurs over several months. So I'll share with you a few things that I do and tell me if that sounds like going in the right direction. One is, uh, particularly I do this in the group setting when I do run groups, we do strategy assessment. So every person, I use a portal where all the students who are in the uh, in in the group training uh, um, import, uh, I mean, uh, upload their strategies, and then the students are asked to do peer evaluation of the qualitatively assess which is the top strategy that they think. So it's not good, bad, or ugly, but just saying, I think this is a great mm-hmm. strategy, you know. <laughs> and, right. and then so in, when three strategies, this is the top one, I think. This is the most effective strategy. I don't know you, but I think the strategy is that quality. The second thing we do, I have a, <laughs> a nine-foot-tall uh, mirror in my office. And one of the things we always do is that I pretend to be the student and have, you know, all kinds of ailments <laughs> that either, you know, my uh, I'm disheveled. I don't have my backpack or, and so uh, we both are standing uh, looking in the mirror. And this is something I do, which I call it self-check. As soon as the uh, client walks in, we always, so every session begins with a self-check. And eventually in the, this flipped role, we begin to do where they do the self, uh, they make me do the self-check. So they 
kind of walk, walk me through. They give me feedback. So it's a very concrete. It's not behavior. It's something they observe. So it's not uh, related to strategy. And the last thing we do, as I mentioned, is I do something called glitch list. So every week, the student does a running list of glitch, glitches that he or she ran into goal management or planning. And then we take we flip the role and they advise me as if that was my glitch. And what would they tell, what would I do? Or what do they recommend I should do because the glitch was mine? And so that flipping the role seems to be quite effective. They're able to take the perspective of the other and kind of give advice because they are not vested emotionally to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or kind of scared even that this is unavoidable mistake. <laughs> so that sounds wonderful, Suchetta. <laughs> Can I join your group? Yes, please. <laughs> I would love when you come to Atlanta uh, in this summer. We, we, we would love to that have That is wonderful. <laughs> so while you were talking, um, I was reminded that one of the, the activities that we had our college students do is to in the end, they run their own team meeting. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah. So at the beginning, we have a team meeting and we're pretty much in charge, right? And um, their parents or their family or whoever they whoever they want to be on their team is there. And it's pretty much run by the speech pathologist or the coach. But at the end, uh, when they're finishing up and they're, it's their, the end of, of the coach of coaching, then they take that role and they do everything that they need to do to organize that meeting. So they get, they make the list, they get everyone's emails, they get, they decide on the time, they arrange the room. So, and they have the agenda and they share, you know, with the team um, what they've been up to and the things that they've been able to accomplish. And so then they run it. So that's kind of a, a path, a rite of passage. So that's, kind of the way that they are able to show basically an assortment of executive functions by being able to pull that meeting off. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And um, it's it's funny that you mentioned that, uh, I mean, so much dynamic coaching goes into where they come ready to run the meeting. I see this as a strategy in many schools that I consult with, that they're doing student-led conferences, but the students have such poor insight into self that they have done some self-check and self-report, but it's not accurate. So it's not been ah. vetted. <laughs> it's not right. gone under any scrutiny, which is not good. <laughs> you had asked me about how do you work with students who don't have that self-awareness? Yeah. And this, I get this a lot. And we have worked with students who didn't have as much self-awareness in certain things as we had hoped. But think about it this way. Self-awareness is something that you have only to the level that you think your skill set is is achievable. So, for example, a, an expert tennis player has incredibly deep self-awareness in how they serve the ball and how they're, how fit they are and all kinds of things that have to do with tennis that I have absolutely no awareness of. So, I my self-awareness about tennis is very, very surfacey. And I think that's where a lot of our students are at in their self-awareness. They have kind of a surface level of awareness. They don't have deep levels of self-awareness. If a student continues to show up to coaching sessions, then they have something that is motivating them. So they have some level of awareness about why they're showing up. And if a clinician coach gets a lot of pushback 
on activities or skills that the coach thinks they should work on, then it really should just be flipped, like you've mentioned. So at that point, I would say, well, what is it that you want to work on today? What is important to you? What do you enjoy doing? And what do you want to get better at? And by doing that, the student gets the message that you're willing to adjust and you're willing to meet the student where the student is at. And it may be very uncomfortable for the coach because the coach may realize, well, he's going to fail at at something that he doesn't want to work at. But I think for speech pathologists, because we're so good at our executive functions, we like to plan and we like to prevent problems from happening. But not everybody has that same kind of coping strategy. Yes. So some of our students are planners and they're wonderful to work with. And some of our students are avoiders. And when they are, when they are faced with a difficult situation, they'll avoid it until they fail. And those students for us are difficult to work with because we would want, we would hope that you could prevent the problem, but they have a different learning strategy. So they learn from trial and error. And we had a couple of students like this, and it wasn't easy for us to watch. But the student didn't seem that bothered by having (laughs) a couple failure. They didn't. So uh, by having a couple failure experiences. And so, okay, we'll go with that. And uh, we'll work on what he wants to work on or what she wants to work on. I'm not ignoring those problem areas. So the student would come back and say, well, you know, what happened? Oh, I didn't do so well. Oh, and then he would often even say, oh, but I learned from this. And so what's your solution? Oh, your solution is to maybe even like drop that class. If you can find a different class that would meet that requirement so that that might not be the way you and I would would have wanted the student to respond. But if his goal or her goal is to simply graduate and to find a class, that meets that requirement that he can succeed at, then by all means, do that. Yeah, I think uh, I like the just fundamental at heart of uh, promoting and developing executive function is your own executive function proficiency, where you adapt and adjust and allow certain things to go in a direction that you may not feel fully comfortable. And maybe you're asking people to be less type A when trying to teach people or mentor people. I really appreciate, Mary, your time and your brilliant insights into helping students become their own agents in their success. And I love the compassion you bring uh, to your work because it is hard work and uh, particularly working with self-blind people, people who don't have the greatest insight into self can be a little bit frustrating if uh, we don't watch our own emotions. So your work is extremely relevant and powerful, and I appreciate you coming on the podcast today and sharing your knowledge today with us. Thank you very much. It's been enjoyable, and I look forward to hearing more about your own work too. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. If you liked today's podcast episode, please recommend this show to a friend or a colleague, and we thank you for that. On behalf of our host, Sue Cheta Kamath, today's guest, Mary Kennedy, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thank you for tuning in and listening today, and we look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal. Mm-hmm.
Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.